As you come back to your seats, would you please turn with me to the book of Titus? I believe the Lord wants me to preach Titus 2 this morning, but every time I've walked up to this Bible that's been sitting on this stand, it's flipped the page to Philemon. So I don't know if that means anything. Philemon and Hebrews 1. I'm going to preach Titus 2. I trust that's what the Lord has for us this morning. We're going to finish this chapter. We've been working on it for two Sundays already. And last week, we left off at verse 10. And that verse ends like this, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's our starting point for today, the doctrine of God our Savior. Please don't raise your hands, but I do wonder, those of you who were here last week or maybe the week before, if anyone left feeling like you knew what to do but you didn't know how to do it, or maybe you didn't think you could. How are the older men, earlier in this chapter, going to be what they're supposed to be and do what they're supposed to do? How are the older women going to be and do what they should, and the younger women, and the younger men, and the servants, the employees? Be good, do good, be good, do good. And you may be thinking, I can't do that. And if you're thinking that, you're right. You can't. None of us can do that apart from what we're going to talk about today. The key word for today, I'll tell you in advance, is grace. That's our theme. We've said in weeks past that the theme of the book of Titus is that truth leads to what? Godliness. Truth leads to godliness. How does it do that? It does that by grace. If you wanted to add that prepositional phrase on to the end, you would have Truth leads to godliness by grace. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read these five verses for us. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good work good works speak these things exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, you are a good and gracious Father. And we praise you and thank you for that this morning. Lord, we confess our need of you. I confess my need of you this morning to live the life you've called me to live as your child and to preach this sermon that you've called me to preach this morning. Lord, we have the promise that you're here with us, that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are in the midst. You are here. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would have unhindered control 
over our ears this morning and ultimately of our hearts. Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. And we're begging you to pour out your spirit on us this morning. That you would anoint me by your spirit to preach your word accurately and clearly. That your Holy Spirit would show us what we need to do in response to your word. That we wouldn't go from this place just having seen what we look like and ignoring it. But that we would know what to do in response to it. How to change that you would make us more like Jesus. So we ask that you would give us ears to hear. That you would prevent distractions. And that you would work your will in this service during this time. We thank you for what we know you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What question are we trying to answer this morning? Here's the most basic one. What is grace and what's in it for me? What is grace and why should I care? What is grace and how does it play out in my life? That's what I'd like us to focus on this morning. So that is our key word, grace. And very simple main point for these five verses is that God's grace trains us. Or if you would prefer, the word teaches us. God's grace trains us. We're going to see that specific statement when we get to verse 12. This morning we're going to see the effects of grace past, present, and future. So if an outline would be helpful to you, we can outline these verses. And really, 11 through 14 go together, and 15 is a little bit different to sum up this chapter. But 11 through 14 are just one long sentence in Greek. And you can outline this section this way. We have past grace, and that's salvation in verse 11. We have present grace, and we call that sanctification in verse 12. We have future grace, and you can call that glorification in verse 13. And then he goes back again to look at past grace in the form of redemption. That is the word there in verse 14. So past, present, and future grace, salvation, sanctification, glorification, and then a look at verse 14, redemption. Go back to verse 11 with me, please. There it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What's the first word of verse 11? For, F-O-R. It means because. These four verses expand on and explain what Paul wrote about in verses 1 through 10. You say, I don't know what he wrote in verses 1 through 10. I haven't been here. Then read it on your own, study it on your own, or go back and listen to the other sermons. That's fine too, either way. But he's been giving some very practical commands that Titus is supposed to relay to different groups within the church on Crete. And he says here in verse 11, for the grace of God. So we got to know what grace is. If this is what we're going to talk about, is this, this is the topic, the key word of the day, what is it? Grace is God's unmerited favor to us. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. 
God's blessings that we don't deserve and could never deserve. We will never earn grace. It is unmerited, it is unearned. So if that's what grace is, what does grace do? I'm going to ask you that question a lot today. What does grace do? Think of grace as an action. It brings us to Christ. It enables us to say no to ourselves and yes to God. It empowers us to deny ourselves and live for him. Here it says, the grace of God that brings, or your translation may say, offers salvation. So in the context of this verse, we could say that grace is a person, Jesus Christ. What else does grace do? Grace has appeared. Literally, it became visible. It came to light. It became clearly known. This refers to the incarnation, Jesus' birth, his first coming. I'm going to show you one parallel passage. This is from (coughs) Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. It's a long chapter, so all the way to verse 78. The second half of that verse says, The day spring from on high has visited us. This is part of Zacharias' prophecy. He's talking about his son, John the Baptist, but... His son, John the Baptist, is the forerunner to Jesus. So now he's talking about Jesus. The day spring from on high has visited us. Why? Verse 79 says, To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. If you want to think of it this way, that the grace of God has appeared, think of it as that light bulb moment. The light goes on. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Imagine yourself sitting in the dark. You're on a mountaintop, or maybe you'd rather be at the beach, but you are sitting in the dark waiting for the sun to rise. And the sun rises, and the darkness flees away. That's the picture of this, that God's grace has appeared. God's grace that brings salvation has appeared. To whom has it appeared? What does your text say? What does it say? To all men. There's no trick. There's nothing lost in the translation here. To all men means to all men, or if you prefer, to all people. That's what it means, to all. His grace that brings salvation has appeared to all. So does that mean that everyone will be saved? No. No. This is not teaching universalism. The one and only hope for the human race is Jesus. And the salvation God provided in him. This grace of salvation appeared to all. It is available to all, but it will not be accepted by all. Now you may be wondering, can you prove that from the Bible? Yes, I can. I had a lot of verses as I started my sermon this week, and I took most of them out. But I'm going to give you two of them, both from the Gospel of John. And a great word study for you is the word believe in the Gospel of John. If you'll just search that word. Here are a couple of them. John 1, 12. Great verse. Hopefully you know this one. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So salvation is available to all, but who's going to receive salvation? 
those who believe in his name. Who's going to become a child of God? Those who believe in his name. John 3, we're going to read kind of the paragraph that surrounds the most famous verse, I think, in the Bible, John 3, 16. I'm going to start in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, what's the next word? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, everyone, so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not what? Believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This grace of salvation has appeared to everyone. It's available to anyone who will believe. But unfortunately, not everyone will. Tim Chester wrote in his commentary on this passage, God does not save all people, but he does save all kinds of people. So we all need to live in a way that commends, it displays favorably the gospel to all kinds of people. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Those of you who were here, we were talking about living in a way that reinforces the truth of the gospel so that it is clear, so that it is attractive. Remember we talked about that? So that it is winsome to those around us. Now, remember, grace is an action. It does not leave us where we are. It changes us. When I begin to understand the grace I've received, I will desire to be holy. What does that mean? I will want to be different from the world around me, I will want to be like Christ. Back to our passage. What else does grace do? Verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Teaching us, or your translation might say training us, or instructing us. This Greek verb means instruction that builds knowledge. Parents understand this. Parents teach their children dozens of life skills, helping them learn to talk, to walk, to feed themselves, to dress themselves long before they're able to read or write or start learning addition and subtraction. That book learning comes later. The life skills come first. That's the type of thing that grace is teaching. So then I want to know, what life skills does grace teach us? I can answer that in three words, and I will in just a minute. But first, I want to do a word association. I'm going to say a word, and I'd like for you to tell me the first Bible character that pops into your head. You ready? The word is deny. Peter. Did the rest of you think of Peter also? All those of you who are awake thought Peter. That's the first one that comes to mind. 
All four Gospels record that Peter denied Christ, and all four use the same Greek word that is translated here as deny. So everybody's saying the same thing. Peter denied the Lord. What does grace teach us to do? Grace teaches us to deny something. To deny the Lord? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But what are we supposed to deny? Denying, look at your text, ungodliness and worldly lusts. To deny means to disown, to forsake, in the same way that Peter denied the Lord. So in this context, it means that I don't know anything about ungodliness, and I don't want to be associated with it. You remember? He's there at the fire warning himself. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. That's how we should be with ungodliness and worldly lust. I don't know about that. I don't know about those worldly lusts. I don't want to have anything to do with those. I don't want to be associated with those. That's what this means. What is ungodliness and worldly lust? We should know that too, huh? Ungodliness, literally it's more the idea of irreverence, or we could say a lack of fear for God. If I don't fear God, I will do all kinds of ungodly evil things. Proverbs has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord. Here are two Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13 begins, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16.16 ends this way, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. What about worldly lusts? These are strong desires to sin or to pursue something good in a way that becomes sinful. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks as well. Here's some verses about lusts, the same Greek word here in our passage. Romans 13, 14. Paul writes, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. That's our first command that I'm sharing with you. There are others we could have looked at. 2 Timothy 2.22 says to flee youthful lusts. Run away from them. 1 Peter 2.11 says abstain. Keep yourself from fleshly lusts that do what? They war against your soul. Now what does it look like if I disobey this command to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? Imagine that you have an addiction. You have a sin habit. And some of you may not have to imagine. You you already know exactly what you're struggling with in your life. But you have a sin habit that has enslaved you. I'm going to list some, but this is not intended to be exhaustive. It could be adultery. It could be pornography. Online gambling. Overspending on shopping. Spending excessive time on social media or television or streaming services or other entertainment. Drunkenness. Overeating. Gossiping. Lying. Stealing. Or any other struggle. There could be others. Many others. What are you likely to do if you find yourself in that position? I am struggling. I am addicted to this sin habit. Well, you're not going to make time to read the Bible. Doing that would be too convicting. You aren't going to pray because God probably wouldn't want to hear from you anyway. At least that's what you're telling yourself. You wouldn't want to go to church or spend time with other believers because you don't want to feel like a hypocrite. 
So you suffer in your own sin by yourself in silence. And this is the part that may surprise you. Everything I just described, although it's very normal, is the sin of pride in the form of independence from God. Both James and Peter write that God resists the proud but gives grace to whom? To the humble. Peter and James include that in their writings. So hear me this morning. By remaining too proud to go to God and confess your sin to him and to go to other Christians and ask for help, you are cutting yourself off from the solution. You are cutting yourself off from the very thing that will rescue you, which is God's grace. James 5.16 says, confess your trespasses. That's another word for sins. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Men, some of you need to talk to another man, another brother, quite possibly in this congregation, someone else in Christ, another brother in Christ, and find grace and healing. And women, some of you need to talk to a sister in Christ and find grace and healing. Children, some of you need to talk to your parents and confess sin and find grace and healing. I said this earlier, but I'm going to say it again now because you're going to understand hopefully better what I mean by it. Grace enables us to say no to sin, to say no to ourselves, and to say yes to God. It empowers us to deny ourselves and live for Him. Are you depending on God's grace to live your spiritual life today. I said I was going to describe what grace teaches us in three words. So the first one, if you didn't catch it yet, is deny. The first word is deny. What else does grace teach us? The second word is live. Deny, live. How are we supposed to live? Do you see it? We should live soberly. And you know what? That's the same word we've come across so many times already in the book of Titus. You know what it means? Anybody remember? It means self-controlled. That's how we're supposed to live. Soberly, self-controlled. Having the right thinking. Being in our right minds about God and about ourselves. This means that grace empowers us to live in right relationship with ourselves. Self-controlled. But then it also says that we should live righteously. I submit to you that that means that grace empowers us to live properly in a right relationship with other people. But that's not all, because there's a third one, that we should live godly. Grace also empowers us to live in a right relationship with God, becoming more like Jesus. What Paul is describing here is the change that begins to occur when God regenerates us, when he brings us, because Ephesians and other places says we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. God revived us. He resurrected us. He gave us life. That's what regenerates mean. This is the change that begins to occur when God regenerates us. And the lifelong process is called sanctification. That is, 
growing in grace and knowledge of Christ and becoming more like him. Again, there's so many passages we could go to. But throughout the New Testament, especially the epistles, in fact, especially the ones Paul wrote, talks about how we are supposed to become more like Christ. From glory to glory, we are becoming more like him. That is a big part of the mission of the Christian life. That's what we're supposed to do, is to become more like Jesus. Those are the first two words. What does grace train us to do? It trains us to deny. It trains us to live. It trains us to, number three, look. And giving credit where it's due, (laughs) these three verbs were pointed out to me by one of my commentaries that was quoting Spurgeon. And he called these the results of the discipline of grace. Here's his quote. The discipline, or we could say teaching or training, the discipline of grace has three results, denying, living, and looking. So what do we mean by looking? Looking means that we wait expectantly. This is verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for means expecting. You mothers who have given birth understand this. You understand what it's like. You have that morning sickness, that first trimester is rough, and then at some point, as you get into that pregnancy, you begin to feel those little kicks. And you know there's a life inside you. And you don't know your due date. You don't know when this baby's coming, but you know that this baby is coming, right? That's the picture here. Jesus is coming back, and I don't know if it's today, and I don't know if it's next week, and I don't know if it's next year. I don't know the date he's coming, but I know he's coming. And that's what this word means. Looking for, what are we looking for? The blessed hope. Well, what's that? Well, hope, as we've talked about before, hope means confident expectation. It's not, I hope it's not going to rain anymore. It's, I know that Jesus is coming back. That's what we're talking about here. It's a confident expectation. So the blessed hope is the certainty that Jesus is coming back. To be more precise, in this verse, the blessed hope refers to his glory. So I don't know if you caught this. But Jesus' first coming, when we looked at verse 12, that emphasizes God's grace. His second coming emphasizes his glory. So we have both. We have the first coming, grace, the second coming emphasizing his glory. And if you're not living in his grace, you're not going to look forward to his glory. It just won't happen. Why not? I'm not ready for him. Are you ready to meet him today? Are you living in his grace today? I've gotten a little ahead of myself because I haven't defined what glory is. It, It says that we're looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing. Chuck Swindoll gave this definition for God's glory. I thought this was good. The state of things... As God desires them. It's the way God wants things to be. So if we take that as the definition of glory, then glorious appearing means showing the way God wants things to be. This word appearing 
It's a different form of the same Greek word we had as appeared back up in verse 11. That was his first coming. This is his second coming. If you'd like some comfort, some encouragement today, then you can read along to yourself while I read these verses from John 14. These are the words of Jesus. What do you say? Let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Why? You believe in God. Believe also in me. And he's going to tell, tell us something else. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. This has always struck me as funny. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus is coming again. He promised and he keeps his word. Every promise he has kept and he will keep. And this says that if we are his children, if we have believed on him like we talked about earlier, he's preparing a place for us to spend with him for eternity. And so far, since he made that promise, he's had over 2,000 years to work on it. So don't you think it's going to be really special? Don't you think it's going to be great? Don't you think it's going to be perfect for you and for me? Before we leave this verse, I must point out, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grammar there is connecting the two ideas that Jesus Christ is God. He is both things. He is our great God, and he is our Savior. And that is describing Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and God. Now, we've looked at the past grace, the present grace, the future grace. Now we're going to look back in verse 14 one more time at past grace. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for us. Another word for grace is gift. Grace is a gift, and Jesus gave us the gift of salvation by giving himself for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Christ, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He gave his body. He was beaten. He bled and died for you and for me. He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us. That he might redeem us. What does that mean? Well, remember the context. When we finished last week, we were dealing with a section, a couple of verses, about servants. And we were applying it to our modern era as far as employee-employer relationships. But it was written to servants. Do you know what this word ransom or redeem means? It means to buy out of slavery. To liberate by payment of ransom. In this immediate context, it means to buy back from the slavery of sin. What was the payment for our sin? What was the payment of the ransom? First Peter tells us that in chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. It's, it's not a money. It's not however many million or billion dollars. This 
ransom, this redemption was accomplished, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. This ransom was paid to God. God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. And what did that payment accomplish? It released us from the slavery of sin. Is, if this is ringing with you right now, this is resonating with you, jot a note and look at Romans 6 later on and read about how we have been freed from the slavery of sin. Here it says we are freed, we are ransomed, we are redeemed from what? From every lawless deed. He has rescued us from sin, from rebellion, from lawlessness. There are multiple passages we could look at for that as well. I'm going to give you one. Ephesians 1 verse 7 In him, that's Christ, we have redemption, same idea, through his blood. Just read that. What is it? Redemption is the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of what? His grace. Do you see how this works together? Grace works redemption through his blood. And what does that mean? I don't know those big words. It means we're forgiven. We know that word. You've done things you had to ask somebody to forgive you, and you've, I hope, received that forgiveness. When you ask God to forgive you, he has accomplished that forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. It goes on to tell us why. Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. So he has done it to redeem us from sin, to buy us back out of sin, that we are no longer slaves to sin, and in order to purify us. So the negative taking you out of sin, sin does not have power over you any longer. But on the positive side, he's purifying us for him. Purifying, same word as refining gold or silver, precious metals. He is purifying for himself his own special people. The promise that Jesus will return should have a purifying effect on his people. John wrote about that in his first letter. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And here's where I'm going. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of what? The hope of seeing Jesus, the hope of being like Jesus, glorified to be like him. What does he say? People who have this hope do something. What do they do? What does it say? Purifies himself just as he is pure. This idea of purification, this idea of holiness, all of this is working together. This is what grace does. Reminding myself that Jesus could return anytime, even today, will cause me to purify myself by his grace so that I'll be ready. And as he purifies these people, he does so that they would be his own special people. A different way to translate that is his prized, treasured possession. If you have a King James Bible with you, if you, you learned it in church long ago that way, it says peculiar people. It's not weird. We're not supposed to be a weird people. We don't need help with that. We're supposed to be purified, 
We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be special in, in the same way as precious stones, gemstones. And that's what Peter said. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And what's the purpose as it's written there? That you may proclaim the praises of him who's called you out of darkness, there's that idea again, into his marvelous light. A special people, a valuable people, his own people, zealous for, devoted to, enthusiastic for, eager to do what? Good works. Now, we are not and cannot be saved by doing good works. Can't happen, won't happen. But as we've already seen in this study of the book of Titus, God has work for us to do after we're saved. This is how Paul explained it to the church in Ephesus. And these first two verses we'll probably talk about again next time because the parallel is in the next chapter of Titus. But Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you can't save yourself. We know that. Famous verses to tell us that we are saved by what? Grace through faith. And it is a what? A gift. Okay? That's the idea of grace. Not of works. So are we clear on that? That's verses 8 and 9. But we've got to get it in context. Verse 10, he talks about works. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, masterpiece, poem, created in Christ Jesus. So we're created. We are a new creature in Christ for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hopefully you know this, but if not, let me tell you for the first time this morning. When God saved you, he saved you to do works, good works, that he had planned for you to do long ago. In eternity past, he has appointed you to do good works. David Jeremiah put it this way. God's people are not saved by doing what is good. They are saved to do what is good. So that they will extend his love and grace to others. Is there a good work that God has put on your heart that you're not doing? And I don't mean a vague sense of guilt. Oh, I should do more. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean a specific good work that the Holy Spirit is leading you to do because he has equipped you to do it and burdened you to do it. And if he has, then obey. We've seen grace, past, present, and future, and then one more time past. Now Paul wraps up this section with one more instruction to Titus. It applies specifically to me and to anyone else who teaches and preaches the gospel. This is verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now I'm going to go through these words quickly so that we know what we're talking about. When it says speak, it means declare, proclaim. We've seen that word before. These things. What things? The entire letter that he's writing to Titus, but I think specifically verses 1 through 10 that we've spent the last two weeks studying. Speak, declare these things. Exhort, we've seen that word in this letter already. Urge, beseech, encourage. 
Rebuke, correct. Tell people what's wrong. Reprove them. Do it how? With all authority. Whose authority? God's authority. The authority of Christ given to Paul the Apostle, who's writing this. The Holy Spirit is breathing it out in him, sending it to Titus. But he has deputized Titus with his own apostolic authority. So Christ sends Paul. Paul has sent Titus. And he says, that's the authority you have. And he finishes up by saying, let no one despise you. Let no one disregard you. Another way to say that, to paraphrase it, would be, don't be intimidated by anyone. Most of these letters, because remember, this is a letter. It's not a book of the Bible when it's originally written. It is a book of the Bible. But it was written as a letter, and it likely was read in the churches. That's what they usually did with these. So this statement is there for Titus to encourage him to bolster his faith. Be brave. Step out. Don't let anybody disregard what you're having to say. It's for him, but it's probably also for the other people hearing it. Let no one despise you. All right, if there are any other those false teachers we were talking about in chapter 1, let it be said that he's supposed to preach these things, teach them, and don't let anybody disregard what he has to say. People need to listen to these things. What is the main point from today? That God's grace trains us. It teaches us to do what? To deny, to live, and to look. Today's message has been very much about salvation. It's been to believers and unbelievers. Anyone in this room, anyone online with us, has the grace of God appeared to you and by that mean i mean are you saved have you come to christ alone for salvation like we were just talking about a minute ago received the gift of god if not you can do that today you you call out to him you say god i know i've broken your your rules and i know i can't do anything about it would you please rescue me Would you please save me? And you know what? He will. He does. He's promised. And he he always keeps his promises. Christians, are you humbly seeking and accepting the work of God's grace in your life today? Are you stuck in sin? Do you need to say no to sin and yes to God? There's grace for that. There are other Christians around you who are in their own sanctification process, but they would be willing to talk with you and pray for you and encourage you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're dreading the return of Christ. You're not ready. His grace is enough for that too. He can enable you to purify yourself and even become excited as you look forward to his coming. Are you living for yourself and struggling to love and serve others around you? 
His grace can empower you to love others as you love yourself and to do the good works He's appointed for you. You say, Bob, where do I start? You humble yourself. You acknowledge that need. You acknowledge your need for God to help you, so you start with Him. God, I cannot do this on my own. I can't begin to do I don't know where to start. And you tell Him that. And in many cases, it may mean that if you're a man, you go to another man in this church. Or if you're a woman, you go to another woman. Or kids, you go to your parents. And you say, I'm struggling here. I don't know where to start. This is not, and we better never pretend that this congregation is a bunch of people who have their act together. It is not. And when we talk about these good works, please don't think, I, I have to wait till I'm older, till I get my act together, till I defeat this sin. We should be defeating sin, and we need help to do that. But it, if I wait till I have my act together and that I, I've reached sinless perfection to start teaching the Word of God, then it'll never happen. So we need to be real. We need to seek God's help. Remember, when I humble myself, I receive God's grace. We need to be honest. And I don't mean stand up and testify all your sins, confess them to everybody in the church every week. What I mean is look around. What brother or sister do you feel like, I, I could trust that person. That person has a walk with the Lord. He hasn't arrived either but I think I could talk to him. I don't think he's going to spread that or gossip. And you're open and you're honest. And you say, I'm struggling here. Will you pray for me? And he says, sure. I would be glad to pray for you. And he prays with you and he helps hold you accountable. And, and then he says, I have this other area that I just can't seem to get victory over. I'm, I'm struggling here. Will you pray for me? And what does James say? James chapter 5, I read it earlier. It says, confess your faults to one another and be healed. This Christian life isn't designed to work in solo. That I'm just going to cloister myself off and go live in a monastery and, and figure it all out on my own. He designed it to be lived together in a community. We are called sheep. Sheep are not solo creatures. They get lost, they die when they're by themselves. And if we're going to follow God's design for the church, that's this book of Titus, we have to know that we're recipients of God's grace and say, God, I'm humbling myself. Pour out the grace. I need the grace. I need your grace today. I need your help. I need your strength. I'm going to seek you in your word. I'm going to seek you in prayer. I'm going to seek you with my brothers and sisters. That's his design. He'll honor that request. That's his will. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace today. We acknowledge our need of it. And we pray that it would do what you intend for it to do. That we would deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That we would live self-controlled lives that we would focus on 
doing the good works you've called us to do. Lord, we're dependent on your grace to help us do it. And we're also dependent on the other believers, the brothers and sisters you've put in our life to encourage us along the way. And we pray that all that would take place to your glory here in the church. In Jesus' name, amen.